There's so much we can learn from our students. On today's show, Dr. Doug McKee talks with us about eliciting and using feedback from students. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I am thrilled to be welcoming on Dr. Doug McKee, who I met through the modern miracles of technology. (laughs) And Doug, I want to welcome you first to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I know that you have a common passion, as I do, about teaching. And so we're going to talk a little bit about your expertise and, and your teaching position now. But before we even do that, would you talk a little bit about kind of how you got this passion for teaching and about your blog and your upcoming podcast. Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so, so I grew up in a, um, a teaching household. My mom is a teacher. Her mom was a teacher. And so it's always been kind of around me. Um, but it never occurred to me that I would want to be a teacher myself. Um, my undergraduate degree is actually in computer science. I worked in industry for a long time. I ended up getting a chance to take some time off for a while and decided that I wanted to, to change the world. And the way to do that was designing new mechanisms through economics. Mm-hmm. So I went and I got my PhD in economics. Whenever you're in an uh, elite research institution as a graduate student, the, even if you have ideas going in about what you want to do with your degree, you're brainwashed into by the faculty into trying to reproduce them. And so I came out and I said, well, I'm uh, instead of wanting to get a job in the industry or actually doing things, um, I should get a job doing research at a big research university. After that, I got a I took a postdoc position at the University of Pennsylvania where I was doing pure research. I actually had an opportunity to do some teaching then. And I said, no, thank you. Um, Then I came to Yale. My wife actually teaches in the sociology department here. uh, And I got another two-year postdoc position. And then I had the opportunity again to teach an advanced undergraduate seminar. That time I accepted the job. And I loved it. You got hooked. (laughs) Ever ever since, I've just slowly accumulated more and more more teaching positions uh, and really have developed a passion for it. And now you teach in two entirely different, I mean, I'm sure they don't seem entirely different to you, but to, from an outsider, you teach both in economics and also in the School of Medicine. Would you talk a little bit about kind of your expertise and how that fits into both of those areas? So my research is in, for the most part, program evaluation. So I evaluate things like school programs, uh, healthcare reforms, things of that nature. The tools that I use for that are econometrics and statistics. So when I teach in the economics department, I'm teaching those statistical methods as well as how to use those methods to answer substantive questions. It turns out that lots of disciplines use almost the same set of tools with a slightly different set of names. So in the med school, what I do is I teach a three semester sequence in biostatistics. 
But what they don't know is I'm really teaching them econometrics uh, applied to uh, substantive questions in health and healthcare. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching right now a business ethics class, which might not seem like it relates to what you're talking about, but I promise it does. And it's been so fun for me because the students had taken philosophy from one of our poli sci professors the former semester. And it's it's so rewarding for me because I teach so many foundational classes. I teach intro to business principles of marketing and to get to teach something where they get to draw from the different disciplines and start to think much more cognitively, much more deeply about it and start to put the pieces together. And then, of course, it's, since it's business ethics, it's very applied. It's just been really rewarding to get to experience that. And, and it's a sort of a different uh, t- teaching. I taught it at the master's level and for businesses in the past. And I actually designed a program for the University of California, Irvine, out here on the staff side of things, because they had some ethical challenges, shall we say, as an <laughs> institution would. But it's it's just, that's been really rewarding. So it must be fun for you to get to see sort of those different pieces come together that... So my students down in the med school are part of a two-year program for physicians where they learn how to do research. Mm-hmm. They have particular questions they want to answer. So these are people that have worked in emergency rooms and seen different ways that people do things. They have an idea about what should be done, but they don't have the the skills to actually tell that story and test that that hypothesis. And so when I'm teaching, it's it's like bringing water to someone in a desert. They just they can't believe that they actually get these skills that they mm-hmm. they need. Um, and the other thing is when you teach something very similar to different audiences, you really and in, and in different ways. So I teach small seminar style. I teach big lecture style. I teach online. You really get a handle on kind of what works and what doesn't work. And you can kind of learn things in one format and say, hey, wow, I, I should try that in the other format. So for anyone listening, we're about to start kind of shifting the conversation. And I want to mention this, this episode 35. So if you want to access any of the links that Doug and I are going to talk about, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash 35. Because you have a a blog, which I'll link to teachbetter.co. And when I mean, we, if anyone who goes there, it's just so rich with resources and you're extremely transparent about your own teaching. I have not come across, I'm, I'm, not, I'm sure it exists, but I just haven't come across anyone quite as transparent as you about here it is, you know, for better or for worse, I started doing this and every time I teach, I get a little bit better and, and actually post your evaluations and a lot of reflection about how different aspects of your teaching work. Did you just start out doing that naturally because of your background in statistics or did that kind of emerge after some time? No, so it's, so it's two things actually. So first I started blogging about three years ago, just for fun. Um, I felt like occasionally I would have these ideas about just about anything. And I wanted a way to kind of think through those ideas and a way to do that would be, was to write it down. I found that over time I was writing more and more about teaching. And so just, just this past spring is when I decided to spin out all the teaching content into its own blog. I was also going into a period where I was going to be teaching an online class in a new way. And I thought that there'd be a lot to contribute there. And I was going to be teaching a a large lecture for the first time. It just seemed like the right time. And then another thing is the head of our teaching center here at Yale, a guy named Scott Strobel, said something to me that just stuck with me. He said, teaching should be a public act. Mm. And so 
I feel like there's so much to learn about other people's both successes and failures that there must be an audience out there for hearing about kind of what I try. And so I, so I teach in a, in a, in a, in a research institution where most of the faculty, they don't have the time or the incentive to try new things in the classroom. And so what I feel, I feel part of my job as a lecturer is to try all these new things and learn as much as I can and share that with the rest of my department. And if I'm going to share with the rest of my department, I might as well share with the whole world. Mm-hmm. And certainly you've probably ran across people. I'm sure you're aware of some of the hesitation. I know for myself, I think I've held back from doing too much of the statistical analysis, particularly the way that you approach it, because I always feel like, well, it's not going to, there's not going to be that control group. And I've had colleagues who said, well, you know, you could, you could do this. And I think, well, it's not going to be an accurate reflection. I'll give you an example. So, so they were trying to figure out about whether we should do blended learning or not for a particular course. And I had a strong opinion one way, and let's just say (laughs) that's a strong opinion the other way. And they wanted me in just one semester for the nine o'clock class, do it one way and the noon class do it another way. And then you will have our answer. And, well, and I, and that's I did, absurd. Well, I, yeah, I thought like that's because I, I teaching. I teach a lot at nine o'clock in the morning, and I teach a lot at noon. And it is hysterical to me how different. In fact, last semester for the first time, I taught three sections of the exact same class. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's really a wacky thing. You start to think. Oh, I, I feel like that. I feel like I just said that. Well, that's because you did, but that was at eleven, not at noon. <laughs> so, oh, I'm not sure I could handle that. I have a hard time remembering if I'd said things from year year across year. Mm-hmm. So you gave me courage, though. I mean, you give me courage to say, no, maybe the way that they suggested isn't, it's just not going to be reliable. Um, but, but it's, okay, so let me say two things. So first is, it is true that if you can somehow keep as much the same as possible and just vary one thing, and you can do it such that uh, the two groups are, I mean, are very, very similar. You can sometimes learn more than if you just try something new and kind of look closely at it. So I do. I did a whole bunch of statistical evaluation of what happened in my class last semester. Uh, a lot of what I learned is suggestive. So I learned that when my students come to class and watch and uh, they're in person for the lectures. Their out their midterm scores had some average. If I compare that average to the midterm scores of the students that decided to only watch the vi- the lectures on video, because all of my lectures were recorded and available to everybody in the class within 30 minutes of finishing each lecture, and some students decided to substitute and just watch that instead, those two groups did equally well in the class. Hmm. I didn't randomly assign some people to the you have to attend and other people to the you have to watch on video, but I still think we learned something valuable there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you do that every semester. You're testing something. So you're it's it's right. an ongoing process and it looks like you've been doing it for years. So we're able to go and kind of see a more holistic approach over that. So that's helpful. Well, I know today we're going to focus specifically on one aspect of studying our own teaching, and that's the getting feedback from our students over over the course of the semester and, and perhaps beyond um, to improve our teaching. So I know you have some suggestions for us on that. Yeah. So 
it, I'm, I'm flattered that you think I've been doing this for years and years and years because I absolutely have not. Oh, it looks like um, it on your blog. I, I, I got lost in there the first time I went there. I was both I, I both loved you and was angry with you all at the same time because I thought, oh, I can't I can't step away from the computer. There's so many good resources up there. I tell you this, I up until up until September, I'd never taught a class with more than 40 people in the room. Mm, wow. So stepping from there to 150 was a pretty big change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I believe you can, if you experiment a lot in the classroom, you can learn a lot in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. I also remember, so many years ago, I was really interested in, there, there was a five minute period of my life where I was really interested in writing uh, science fiction novels. Mm. Literally, it lasted a week. <laughs> uh, but in that time, I picked up this book and the book was written by someone who was not a successful science fiction author. And what he said is, I feel like I'm just breaking through now. And so I remember what it was like at the beginning. And so now I feel like it's the time to write my advice for the person that's starting out. Mm. Whereas 30 years from now, when I when everything is completely natural to me, I'm not going to be able to write as useful things, useful advice for other people. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole idea. I don't know if you've come across this phrase or not working out loud is that a phrase you've come across before yeah i like to work out loud yeah and it really i mean it's such a powerful idea and and really can teach us so much but it's that whole courage that we have to have to say hey i don't have this all figured out yet so it's hanging out there and that's going to show some of my weaknesses but here we go right right Uh, i mean in some sense it's exactly what we want our students to do which is engage with the material not to sit there and passively experience a lecture. And we shouldn't as teachers passively experience the lecture either. If we can kind of step back and like take notes and think about it and turn it over in our head and connect it to other things, we can learn a lot more when we're teaching just like we want our students to learn more while we're we're teaching them. I had one of these moments last night because I was going back and looking at Oh, I'm going to get his name wrong, Stepin something, who who coined the term working out loud. I'll put it in the show notes. At any rate, I thought, what we're doing is teaching out loud. And then I looked and someone already has the domain name teaching out loud, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that's exactly what we're doing. And it's such important, important work to help us ourselves, but also then to be able to pass on to others. So what are some of the ways we can use feedback from our students to improve our teaching? First of all, I think waiting till the very end of the semester for your course evaluations is is not enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I'm I sometimes I feel like I'm in the minority, but I actually believe that there's a lot of value in course in standard old course evaluations, not so much from the numeric ratings, but from the comments that students make. And actually, I have a, a post that I'm I'm working through. I want to get it right on how to extract as much value as possible from student evaluations. But that's only going to help you in the next time you teach the class. Or maybe if you're lucky, you'll learn things that'll help you in teaching some other class that you're teaching. Mm -hmm. But if you want to get that student feedback and improve the class that you're teaching right then, you have to start early. And that can be kind of formal anonymous surveys very early on. That can be talking to students after class. Hey, how's this? How's the class going? I usually have maybe three or four students in every class that I get to know pretty well, and I'll check in with them every few weeks. How did you think that class went? What are people saying about this? What can we do differently? 
those things make a big difference. Do you think that they make a big difference be, because of something called the Hawthorne effect? That, that was the studies that the Hawthorne company did on lighting conditions. And they would go in and say, is, the light, is it better when the lights are um, up high for you? Are you able to work better? This is a production, a manufacturing facility. And so the Hawthorne effect is the idea that when we go in and ask people, how is this working for you? Is, and that, that the, the very act of us asking makes them more satisfied. Do you think there's some of that going on? Or do you think it's something different in terms of, of asking for their input? So it's both. Mm-hmm. It's, I, absolutely, they appreciate that you're getting there. They're, you're asking them about something. So I have a friend. So we can we can actually quantify this. I have a friend who, when he taught a class, he taught a class for the first time. And at the mid-semester, he gave them this mid-semester evaluation form. And one of the suggestions that several students had was, could you write up your notes for each class and distribute them after class? That would be, that'd be really helpful. Then we wouldn't have to make sure we have to get down every little thing that, that you say. And he came to them after the mid-semester evaluation and he said, okay, here's what you told me. And here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to write up these notes. Okay. And for the rest of the semester, he wrote up those notes and they really appreciated it. And so then the next year rolled around and he knew that that's what they were going to ask for. And so he did not write up the notes for the first half of the semester. He waited until they said, hey, it would be great if you could write up notes for the for your, this class. And he said, that sounds great. Hmm. And so he went ahead and had all the notes already written for the second half of the semester. And so he was able to get this this bump in um, their happiness by doing zero work at all. I don't recommend that. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd uh, use a different approach. Right, exactly. But it is, but it is this idea that's just kind of being receptive to student feedback. It gives you this level of, kind of it, it makes you, it makes them realize that you're on their team. Mm-hmm. Or in this example, it makes them think that you're on their team. Yeah, yeah. You also use discussion boards too to elicit some feedback. Uh, I do. So I'm a so one of my recommendations for the at the end is um, I can I'll actually I'll give it to you right now is a discussion board system called Piazza, mm-hmm. where it's not just any old discussion forum. Um, it's a it's a website piazza.com. Uh, it's designed specifically for classes where students post questions. Those questions can be about the substance of the class. Those questions can be about logistics. I've had plenty of students complain about exam questions. Uh, some of the feedback is useful, some isn't, but it's always, it's a, but it's a channel that you can hear things from the students. And in a large lecture, you just, that stuff's gold. Mm-hmm. At the end of the class, the student in the back who's not happy and didn't understand things, they just walk out the back door. In a small class, you notice that student and you can pull them aside and say, hey, I realized that you didn't, you didn't seem like you were following everything. What, where did things go wrong? So you need every, every little channel you can get. Yeah, today for, with, when talking with you, this is the first time I've heard of this. And it's, it says the incredibly easy, completely free Q&A platform save time and help students learn the power of community. It looks fantastic. So I'll be posting a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm a huge fan. It's a gem. 
But yeah, another nice feature of it. So two, let me just throw out two more nice features of Piazza. Uh, if you're teaching a, math, a class that has equations in it, you can actually very easily enter equations into your questions. So when I teach statistical methods, that's a really critical piece. Uh, and then second, students can answer questions as well. And I can mark which, whether I like the answer or not, I can endorse student answers so that I don't actually have to answer everything. That and of course, fantastic. everybody benefits from, from everybody's questions. Oh, it sounds fantastic. It look, and it looks, it looks really slick too. That's fabulous. So you, in addition to using technology, using the end of semester surveys, mid semester surveys, you have an emphasis too on in-person opportunities, the more informal. Oh, absolutely. So I do, so I do two things. So first, something I started last semester is I have weekly lunches. So once a week, I have students sign up and I go to lunch with six to eight students. And I just establish that personal connection so that when they're having trouble, they don't feel as bad coming to me. Um, and then second, and this is something that I've been doing for a long time, is the last 15 minutes of the semester, I say, okay, we're going to stop teaching and we're going to have a conversation about what worked and what didn't work. And that gives me two things. So one, if somebody raises an issue, we can actually have a conversation about how to fix it. And, and we all participate and everyone has pretty interesting ideas a lot of the time. The other thing it does is if there's one person that thinks that they have a real problem with the class, but no one else believes it. Okay. If there's one person that says there's way too much reading involved in this class, this is an opportunity for them to realize that, well, wait a minute, there's no one else in the class thinks there's way too much reading. Maybe it's not as bad as I think. Mm -hmm. And that's valuable. Yeah. I, in the corporate world, we do this exercise that's called start, stop, keep. That's in a lot of workshops. So what are we going to start doing? What are we going to stop doing? What should we keep doing? And I tend to do that for talking about the class. But of course, I don't know if you've experienced this, Doug, but if I ever did it with just those as the parameters, it would be almost entirely things that I, as the professor, need to stop doing, keep doing, start doing. And my dissertation was partially on something called locus of control. And I know I know, I have a bias toward internal locus of control, but it does help because there's a cor strong correlation between internal locus of control and higher grades. So I figure I'm, you know, my bias can, can pay off in this particular case. So I'll say like, well, what should I do? But what should you do as a student? And then what should we as a learning community start, stop, keep? And I think having those three lenses that we put on it will help those with more of an external locus of control start to kind of try on a different pair of lenses. That's very interesting. I've, it's never even occurred to me to ask them what they could do differently about the class. It really helps. And actually, I talked to them pretty transparently about, well, because it shows up in a couple of courses I teach this locus of control lens. And so I say, which ones do you think get better grades? Why do you think that is? And they talk about, well, it would probably be a lot harder to change our professor than it would be to change our, you know what, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so, so what kinds of things do they come up with? That they need to do differently? Yeah. Oh, typically not, not uh, procrastinate and cram at the end of the, you know, right before the exam, not procrastinate, manage their time better is almost, I mean, the preponderance of it. I mean, I think it comes down to I'm kind of a control freak. Mm -hmm. So whenever I hear those things, I think, what can I do such that they can't procrastinate? 
Yeah, so if yeah. I have a big project, so a lot of classes, there'll be a big paper due at the end of the semester. I think that's a terrible way to organize a class. Mm -hmm. And so what I do instead is I say, okay, you need to send me your idea very early in the semester. And then you have to send me a midterm draft at the halfway point of the semester. And I'm going to give you lots of feedback on that midterm draft. And then we're going to meet with two weeks to go. And you're going to tell me like all the progress that you've made before you actually have to write the, the final draft of this paper. Yep. As we're recording this, you already know that Ken Bain is going to be on the show soon. And I was reviewing my notes on his wonderful book. And that was one of the big things that came out was that the what the great teachers do what the best college teachers do is that feedback over time, exactly like you just described it, Doug, where we're not just having the paper and okay, <laughs> we're, oh, you've procrastinated. It's, oh, and here you go. But that, that that that's not teaching. That's, you know, it's so interesting you say that because I've been going back and thinking about how you only really learn when you make mistakes. And so I've been noticing all the things that I could have done better last semester. And one thing I noticed as I was putting together people's final grades is there's a set of students that took my class that did poorly on the early problem sets. They did poorly on the midterm. And guess what? They did poorly on the final two. Mm -hmm. Surely there must be some way to intervene. And so I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, wow, if I had known that, I would have sent like the bottom 10% of the class an email and said, hey, please come to my office hours. Let's make a plan for what, what you can change and mm -hmm. what we can change, how I can help you succeed in this class. Yeah. And then, of course, there's part of it of the releasing of the control saying, I can't care more than they do. <laughs> That's absolutely true. But it, it's wonderful when we take it's that it's you're showing off your internal locus of control there because you're going, what could I do differently? Right. And that's I mean, that's that makes perfect sense in terms of your passion for teaching, but also your 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 discipline of of getting to where you got in your life as far as education and so forth. So, well, talk a little bit because we've we've now talked about a number of ways to solicit the feedback, but you, you really have an emphasis then on reporting back to the students what you found and and talking yes. about what will be different. So, share a little bit about how you go about doing that. So, doing the survey or getting the feedback is only the first step. Okay. The second step is to decide what you're going to do about it. Sometimes that's actually doing something. And sometimes they're giving you feedback that you just don't agree with, that there's a, they just don't understand the reason you're doing something. The third step uh, beyond actually doing something or not doing something is to communicate back to the students. So um, there's a website, ICT Evangelist. I'll send you the link in the show notes. Um, he's, he's a, a high school teacher in the UK. And he has this idea that you say, here's what you told me and here's what I did about it. Or here's why I didn't do anything about it. And I think that's absolutely critical. And what's a time, I guess, could you talk maybe about last semester or the semester before what you found out and how you communicated it back and what you did differently? At the beginning of the semester, I thought it would be very efficient if all my students submitted their problem sets electronically. So they would, if they would type it up, all they had to do is submit the PDF. If they hand wrote it, they'd take a couple pictures with their camera phone and upload it to the, to the course website. I heard some grumblings. I surveyed them. What do you think of this process? We did it the first time. 
I would say 50% of the class absolutely hated it. And so what we decided to do was if you give, give the students the choice, however you want to submit the, the problem set, you can submit it that way. It made a huge difference. Hmm. Similarly, we had at the beginning of the semester, I thought, why don't I have the problem sets due um, on Fridays? Okay. If they're, or do, let's say that the problem sets were going to be due Thursday nights. That way, when they went into their Friday discussion section, they could start fresh and focus on the task that I wanted them to do in the discussion section. Well, those problem sets included material all the way up to the, the lecture on the day before, and they hated it. Mm. They just wanted more time to be able to go over that material before they dove in into the problem set. It was forcing them. It was to do their homework on Wednesday nights when they wanted that flexibility. And so these were, these were easy, no problem. Mm -hmm. I'm going to change the, I'll change the due dates and I'll allow you to submit, submit the way you want to. Yeah. I've done that. I did that with my doctoral students who they normally, I have stuff for them due on Saturday nights by midnight. And, and the reason I do that is because I, I, it, it, I think it's a good idea if we take a day to rest and reflect and get off of technology and all of that. And they just have jobs where that's right. not the way they run their lives. And I'm certainly speaking of wanting to control the universe. I can't go and control other people and say, you know, if you work seven days a week, 14, 16 hours a day, it's going to really not be sustainable. It's not my, not my part to control. So that was, like you said, a really easy thing. Not a problem. I will go through. I will change all the due dates to be Sunday night. I think that sometimes it's healthy too, though, to set some boundaries. So, so that, you know, I struggle with making sure I take enough time for me and for my family. So I'm not going to be answering emails on Sunday. So what I need from you is that I need from you any questions to come in for me by Saturday morning so I can have time to respond to them so I can take that time with my family. Yeah, that's terrific. You have to, you have to set those boundaries. I mean, I find that most students are fairly respectful. Um, but you always have a few that will just ask, ask, ask. Yeah. So that you're in addition to your focus on teaching, you're also a, an associate chair. So talk to me about department-wide early warning systems that you've tried out. Something we're trying new this semester. So let me give you a, the backstory is last semester, we had a couple classes in our department that we didn't learn until pretty late in the semester were going very badly. So these were visiting faculty, they were teaching classes and they were just, things were going terribly wrong and we didn't learn about it until very late. And so what we're doing this semester is we're gonna email, and we're, this is happening like any day now, we're gonna email every student that's registered in a class in the economics department, any, every undergraduate student, okay? Majors, not majors. If you're in an economics class, you're gonna get this email. And it's going to say, if you're, if you're running into trouble, if, if something is going wrong in the class, you think that at this point, um, the class is not going well, please go and fill out this form. Okay. And the form will be very simple. What class are you taking and tell us what's going on. And then we can go and we can look and we can say, it, it's, it's an early warning system. Where are the problems? And what substantively, what is actually going wrong, which allows us to go to the professor and say, hey, something's going wrong. Let's fix it mm -hmm. while there's a chance to actually do something about it. 
It might be fun after you've experimented with it for a while to also add in, are there any classes that are going superbly for you so you could find out of classes that, you know, people you really want to make sure you retain and and, because I guess, I don't know. Not too late. We can do that now. Oh, cool. So this is the time in the show when we shift over to recommendations and I've got a quick one and then I'll pass it over to you to close us out. And mine is that we recently bought a new Mac. It was very exciting. And so when in the process of moving computers, my husband's been installing software and there's a an extension that I use on Google Chrome that is fabulous. It's called Speed Dial 2. So it's speeddial2.com. I'll have a link to that in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 35. And what's wonderful about it is I didn't have to, it's a, it's basically has little icons of the websites, like a little, almost like a speed dial on a cell phone kind of thing. So I can easily get to the websites that I use most often. And in combination with one password, it's just great because I can go there and I can log in real quick and get to the tools. So I've got our, our learning management system, And then I also, I teach as an adjunct, so I've got a different university's learning management system and they're just all little icons inside of Chrome. And it's just an easy way for, it's an easy way for if I am needing to get around on the internet, just being able to have everything up and running. I just logged in and all my icons came over and it's just a great tool. So check out speeddial2.com. And Doug, this is the chance for you to give us a couple of recommendations. So, so I have three recommendations, um, a big one, a small one, and an unusual one. Okay, so my first recommendation, actually, is something I already talked about, which is Piazza, the discussion system specifically for classes, and I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I've had terrific experience with it. Um, if, if you teach a large class, there's, there's no reason not to, to try it out, at least. Okay. The second is something that that has solved a a really annoying problem for me. So I used to be one of those people, I'm a little scattered, that I would send people mail and I would say, I've attached the file that you you wanted and then I hit send. And then five minutes later, I'd say, wait a minute, I didn't attach the file. Or they would email me 15 minutes later and say, hey, you forgot to attach the file. not only do I find that annoying myself, it's just embarrassing. And so Chungwasoft makes a, a plugin for the Apple Mail application that searches your mail, the, your message before you, hit, before you hit send. You hit send, before it actually sends the message, it looks for keywords like attached in your message. And if there's no attachment actually attached, it says, do you want to attach a file here? <laughs> and I, I don't make that mistake anymore. And boy, and, and, and frankly, every single time somebody sends me an, an email without the attachment, I just say, no problem at all. You should install this little plugin. <laughs> so Chungwa Soft, forget me not. Love it. Um, okay, so my last recommendation uh, is actually a series of books. So I have kids and they read a lot and I read a lot to them and I like to read myself. So I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout for books that I can read with my kids that won't destroy my brain while I'm reading them. So, for example, my daughter is six and she's really into the rainbow magic fairies and they're incredibly formulaic and that's great for her. 
but it's not so great for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what we found, and this was about a year ago, is a series of books uh, about these little trolls and different strange characters uh, in Scandinavia. It's a series of books written by Tove Jansen uh, in the mid 20th century. Uh, the, the one to start with is called Finn Family Moomin Troll. And honestly, from age four to as old as you are, um, they're fantastic. The, the characters are cute. They go through like these interesting adventures. They're very real. There's like these emotional conundrums that they go through. It's an incredibly rich, interesting world. And it's totally accessible and appreciated, appreciable by little kids and adults. Um, so Finn Family Moomin Troll. Oh, it sounds fantastic. I'm looking at it on Amazon. So that's going to be really fun for us. Our kids are probably too young, but they grow so fast. So I'm going to tuck that one away. <laughs> How old are your kids? Uh, my son just turned three and my daughter just turned one. So. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. That's fantastic. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And do you want to talk about how people can listen to your podcast when it airs or get in touch with you on your blog? Do you want to uh, just end with that? Yeah. So my blog is called teachbetter.co. I blog about my thoughts on teaching and what happens in my classroom, as well as kind of sometimes I'll analyze data that I get from students. Any day now will be will. Uh, a friend of mine and I, uh, Edward O'Neill, will be launching our own podcasts where we just have conversations with teachers. We're going to start. We're going to talk to teachers around Yale. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You'll be able to subscribe through iTunes, and you'll also be able to get to the podcast through teachbetter.co. Well, I'm going to be one of your early listeners, and I will just say that it's so fun that you're doing this. It's it's really rewarding, and there are not a lot of shows that focus exclusively on teaching, so I'm excited, and just thanks for the time you're going to contribute to that. The way I see it, the world has hundreds of tech podcasts. There's, There's plenty of room for more teaching podcasts. I couldn't agree more, Doug, and I look forward to being among the first listeners of your podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening to today's episode. And if you'd like to join in the conversation with Doug and myself, please join us at teachinginhighered.com slash 35. We'd love to hear your ideas and suggestions on things we talked about today and also for future episodes, guests, or topics. If you would like to subscribe to the weekly update, that'll mean you don't have to remember to go to teachinginhighered.com slash 35. You can get the notes from the podcast as well as a weekly article on teaching or productivity in your inbox. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.